Welcome back everyone to Revved Up for Sunday at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in New Canaan, Connecticut. We are the clergy. I'm Elizabeth Garnsey. I'm Justin Crisp. And I'm Peter Walsh. And today we are two weeks into what we're calling ordinary time in our church calendar. And we're looking at passages that address the call of discipleship. And this is a really important passage. And it's where Jesus uh, sets his course for the rest of his journey on this earth. And uh, you'll see that the stakes are high for those who want to follow on the way. So let's look at the passage. Luke 9 verses 51 to 62. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> so I'll just say, I do like this passage. I mean, we sometimes weigh in with, with such sorts uh, and I think the thing I like about this passage starts right at the, the front. So as we pick in, drop into the context of Jesus's life, let's start with Jesus's life and, and as Luke is telling it. And all of the locations in uh, Jesus's life are places and their theological understandings too. And so uh, where we, you had started here, uh, new into ordinary time last week with the garrison. So uh, for those of you who are tuning in, we know in Luke, uh, we begin, remember, with John the Baptist, and, and we get through chapter two, we get Jesus born, and then uh, into three, we have Jesus uh, who is, uh, uh, goes into the wilderness, uh, baptized, goes into the wilderness, begins to develop his ministry by calling disciples. He then starts to uh, gather people around him. We get all the healing and the proclaiming and the parables. And all of this uh, takes place uh, in the miracles up at the sea of so-called Sea of Galilee or Genesaret, as it's known in John's Gospel. And uh, and in the week before, we have uh, Jesus, who's been on the coast at Capernaum, the town that uh, Peter and James and John, you know, worked from, and and took the six-mile boat ride over to to the Gerasenes, and we had that incredible story which we talked about with the the pigs hurtle, hurtling themselves into the sea. <laughs> Uh, and so he's now theologically visited the Gentile world, uh, comes back, and now, uh, as we were talking just before we get started here, what would be an awesome, awesome movie scene in this whole first sentence, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
Mm. And I mean, you guys all know this. This is where you would want to have just like the right Jesus, the right person playing Jesus. Because uh -huh. less has to do with the chin, right? right. It, it has to do with you. Set your chin into the wind. Uh, so when, when the wind blows against you, your chin is just, you're not to be stopped. He is not to be stopped. This is Jesus's psychic existential energy. And it, it, he is focused on something and nothing, nothing will stop his focus. And so when he turns and to be taken up, and we can explore what that means, but it certainly means his death, uh, resurrection, and then he's going up to Jerusalem because you always go mm, up to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And so if you're coming in the north side, up north at Galilee, it's about 75 miles uh, uh, you know, to Jerusalem about that and the route that they take. And they go through Samaria. We just always remember here that the Samaritans and the Jews uh, it did not get along. They're, they're all cousins, mm -hmm. but they disagree about the importance of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And remember the Samaritans, uh, the Samaritans uh, worship on a mountain in Samaria. And Jesus refers to this later about, uh, you know, where will people worship? And if you, go, if you go to the Holy Land today, this mountain, there are still Samaritans and the mountain is still there. You can see it mm -hmm. uh, when you come into town. And uh, the Samaritans live, uh, the leftover of, these, uh, of this, these, these tribal peoples lives, uh, as I said, in the West Bank. And he's not well received there, right? And, uh, and, and then the James and John, right? The, the brothers, the sons of Zebedee want to do a Sodom and Gomorrah on them and rain down fire. Mm. And you know what we don't get here in Luke, but we get in Mark is, is Jesus' sense of humor when he, he calls them sons of thunder. Mm -hmm. And he's just making fun of them. Like, right. no out dudes. Uh, the sons of thunder, and, which is too bad because we don't get enough of Jesus making fun of his disciples, you know, instead of rebuking them. But uh, right. I, I'm just going to leave it at there uh, in, as we get in talking and these along the road, which you always talk about. But this is this is a literally a pivotal scene yeah. in the book. Right. Really good stuff. Yeah, you're right. And it, it, it's both, I think, about um, uh, that kind of, you use the word existential, right? Chin to the wind. I'm making an existential commitment. Jesus has made an existential commitment. His whole being is focused now towards Jerusalem and everything that it means for him. And then Jesus is saying that if you're really going to be one of my disciples, you have to share the same kind of intensity, right? The same kind of existential focus, the same sort of like, this is it. The this is itness of, of Jesus in this scene. Um, but it's also, this is so it's a story partly about existential commitment. It's partly a story about hospitality and the lack thereof. Mm -hmm. And what is the response of Jesus with his existential commitment and of his disciples with their whole beings being converted to him and to his mission and so on? Uh, what is it like to be in a world which is inhospitable? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head because uh, nobody has, I mean, this is in the context of well, the, the, the village in Samaria has not welcomed him, right? He doesn't have a place to lay his head because there's, there's, um, there's no room in the inn of the world for him, even in this moment. So literally in this moment, perhaps theologically or spiritually, I mean, we've talked a lot. We've been in the Gospel of John for so long in the podcast and in the lectionary, right? But this is the Lucan version, the synoptic version of, I think, the sort of alienation of the world from Jesus, the world in Johannine terms, you know, the, uh, the, the light shone in the darkness, as it were. This is, this, is the, um, this is the version, the Lucan version of the light shining in darkness. This is the darkness, the inhospitality of it. The fact Jesus is not received in the prologue of John, it says um, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not know him. And here, this is, this is people not knowing him, as it were. Um, I love the fact, though, that Jesus responds here 
not with sulfur and fire, but with just more determination, more existential commitment, more chin to the wind to really uh, do the business that he, he's about, to fulfill his mission. That's his response. His response is to double down on who he knows he is and what he's called to do, not to rain down thunder or fire or brimstone, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, I love that you mentioned that because um, I'm interested in the Sodom story. Uh, it's a weird thing to be interested in, sodomy. <laughs> uh, uh, but it, it's interesting because, you know, we associate sodomy or the sin of Sodom with same-sex sexual activity, homosexuality, and so on. Uh, and that's really, that's only one way of interpreting that passage. And when you actually, when you look at the way the Hebrew Bible interprets the story of Sodom and Gomorrah within the Hebrew Bible, when the Bible is interpreting itself, you see, like, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 16, I think, that they interpret the sin of Sodom not as having anything to do with sex, but as the sin of inhospitality, mm, of not welcoming in, you know, because the story that God sends yeah. these angels and then they, uh, they, they, they commit some sort of abusive acts towards the angels, but the, you know, the, the heart of it is not necessarily the acts themselves, not that the abusive acts, whatever they were, uh, which I'll just say abusive acts, whatever it was, it was much more specific than, any, than just same-sex sexual activity writ large, right? Um, but even then, the, the primary concern is not simply the, the wickedness of the acts that were done, but the fact they were done to a guest. The fact that the angels were supposed to be received by the people of Sodom with hospitality. And the fact is that they've done something wicked and they've done something wicked to a guest, which is like evil upon evil. And so Ezekiel interprets the sin of Sodom as inhospitality. And uh, yeah, you know, the fire and sulfur uh, descend upon Sodom and Sodom is wiped out, uh, with the exception of, you know, Lot and his wife and his family. And then you, there are other echoes of this later in the passage of this Sodom story, right? First, you have Jesus, you have the disciples saying, okay, do what happened in Sodom. Let's rain fire. We've been, these people have been inhospitable. Let's rain fire and sulfur down on them. And Jesus says, no, my face is turned toward Jerusalem. I'm on my mission. That's the answer here. And then at the end, he's got this, um, when he's explaining the existential commitment that his disciples are supposed to have, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And that reminds me of Lot's wife, uh, for mm -hmm. whom I've always oh, felt nice. sorry, right? So yeah. Lot, Lot and his family are being spared by God from the catastrophe that's being brought down upon, um, upon Sodom. And by the way, this is all from Genesis chapter 19, if I forgot to say that, if you want the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and the mistake, as it were, which Lot's wife makes is, Against God's command, she looks back towards the city as it's being destroyed. You know, they're out from the city, they're walking away, and she looks back. And, and it says that God turned her into a pillar of salt, which I've always thought, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem, it, it seems like an overreaction on God's part, uh, just to be honest. And, and I interpret all those stories with a grain of salt. Uh, no, no pun intended, right? I think, that, I think that what God was doing and what people perceived God as doing in those stories, plus given the mythological character of much of the book of Genesis, right? I, don't, I, don't, I take a lot of that stuff with a grain of salt, um, as it were. But uh, I, that, that looking back thing, to the extent that we're not supposed to be like Lot's wife, we're not supposed to be looking back, I think uh, Jesus is echoing that. There is something about... Do not be deterred by, other, by the way other people receive you or don't receive you. Mm -hmm. hmm. Beautiful reading of that. I think that is a really interesting connection with Sodom, the Sodom story. And here, too, the, a lot of the commentaries make reference to um, Elijah and Elisha as the 
sort of paradigm that, that Luke's echoing, where commanding fire down from heaven is when Elijah's, you know, right. summoning God, the fire to consume the wet wood or the wet piece of wool or whatever it is that, that proves, you know, the sovereignty of Elijah's God over the pagan gods. And um, <clears throat> so that's an interesting other reading, which is really powerful, especially with the looking back. I wanted to um, offer just a possible alternate reading that takes the Samaritans off the hook a little bit. Mm, yeah. <laughs> because it says, if we read this carefully, carefully, it says, on their way, they entered, okay, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So in a way, it could interpret this to say, Jesus sent messengers on ahead to do we don't know quite what, but they, on their way, they entered the village of the Samaritans thinking, oh, this might be a nice place to rest or something. And maybe Jesus has no intention of resting. Mm -hmm. And it's the messengers who don't receive him there. You know, they, he never shows up. They're like, well, is he coming or not? You know, and he, when he decides to pass by, it's possible that it's not a show of inhospitality. It's just simply that Jesus' face is set to Jerusalem and that's where he's going and no time to stop in hotels along the way, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, and so with James and John, sons of thunder, they see this, they observe Jesus, you know, brushing off this village. And so they think, oh, he must hate them. Should we just, you know, consume them? We're, we're, they're all like revved up with the the path that they're on with Jesus and um, and what part of you know shake the dust off your feet and move on do they not understand if it is the idea that he was rejecting or that they they were that the Samaritans were rejecting him um, you know it's they the disciples can only default to the you know fire and brimstone and destruction and let's just blaze a trail to Jerusalem and Jesus has never demonstrated that kind of uh, mission, you know, or that kind of attitude towards other people. Um, it's so interesting. And then the King James Version, I also read, and I bet the two of you have also read that, that the King James Version kept in a verse. Oh, well, I don't know how much of this in our notes, you know, in the Bible, but there are ancient manuscripts that include a verse here um, where it says, he rebukes them, he rebukes his disciples for saying, to command fire down from heaven. He says to them, you do not know what spirit you are of, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy the lives of human beings, but to save them. So the vast majority yeah. of Latin manuscripts have this verse in it, but they're not, and that's why the King James kept it in, but uh, it's not the most ancient. So it's probably not an original Lucan verse, but I think in the tradition, it was, um, that was the overlay of what Jesus was trying to say here, that calm mm. yourselves down, like you said. So I, I really appreciate that reading because I don't think this passage has much to do with the Samaritans because it's really about discipleship and following Jesus on the way, not getting distracted, even with a good and worthy mission, you know, a place that he's already told them they'll go and be mission missionaries to Samaritan, Samaria. And um, also, as you said, he's had interesting Jesus himself has reached out to the Samaritans and you know I wow that's really interesting and I love it that you brought the um, 
the line from the, the King James Version. Mm -hmm. did I, no, I did not read ahead of time. But I do think <laughs> that what it does is, you're talking about the, the scriptures interpreting the scriptures or something, yeah. so that this is a time of salvation, mm -hmm. not yeah. a time of judgment, is what that line to some degree is talking about. Yeah. I, don't, I don't in any way put the Samaritans on the hook at all. Mm. And I don't think Jesus puts them on the hook either. I mean, I, I thought you were going to say something about Girard and the systemic issues that we're facing here, <laughs> because clearly the, the disagreement between the Jewish people and the Samaritans is played out in mm -hmm. all of the Gospels. And we just go back to John's Gospel, which we spent uh, two months in, mm -hmm. but the woman at the well and the woman at the well saying to Jesus, you know, what are you, a Jew, speaking to a woman, me, a Samaritan? Mm -hmm. You know, you're breaking the rules here, man. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to talk to me. And so I, I, Jesus, in my opinion, has no, no truck at all with the Samaritan people at all. Mm. And, uh, and what's being played out is the, the, system, is the system issues of tribal division yeah. amongst cousins. I mean, these are all, these are all mm -hmm. the same. These are all the same people that have a disagreement. It's kind of like denominational disagreement in the Christian church where they, they become uh, so antagonistic toward each other. And so that's embedded in the story. But Jesus, in some sense, when we were talking about the back to the gnarly guy based on your, your nephew and the gnarl of the human condition, <laughs> Jesus, the man of, of, gnarl, of the gnarly guy of peace, walks through the gnarl of, of, the, of the systematic, yeah. the, 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 the tribal disagreements. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, I mean, I think all, all really, really interesting around that. I might just um, move us to one other place now because I'm, I'm aware of time uh, in, in just the passage that I do really think we need to hit here, which is to another, he said, follow me. Uh, but he said, Lord, uh, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury your own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I think mm -hmm. this is one of these passages where Jesus seems like not a nice man. Mm -hmm. uh, and, mm -hmm. and people say, well, why would I follow a guy who's not a nice man? Did he not get the memo <laughs> that kindness counts kind of thing here? Uh, and I think there's a few things happening. here. The first that we might miss is that this is a colloquial expression from Jesus's day. So mm -hmm. when someone says, uh, yeah, let me first go bury my father, that is like me saying I mean, behind the camera are Megan and Rob. And Megan and Rob always want, often want something from me uh, that, uh, that I then have something else I want to get done. And so from here on in, I'm going to say, hey, Megan and Rob, uh, let me first go bury my father. Okay, so uh, what I am saying by not doing what they want me to do is I've got something else I've got to get done. So I'm not prioritizing, unfortunately, for them. And do they the, come back the, to you and they, say, let the dead bury their own father? <laughs> That's what we're now going to hear when I say, uh, I'm going to go bury my father. And I can hear it already. We'll let the dead bury their own dead, right? You know, and you do what I want you to do. So that's what's being played out here. Jesus is using a colloquial expression where the guy is basically, when Jesus says, follow me, he's, he's basically saying to him, you know, that's actually a kind of cool idea, but I got a few things I need to do first. Mm. And Jesus is saying, you know, you, you're missing it. You're missing, you're missing it, dude. You know, mm -hmm. this is like, I got I to gotta do these other things. I got a thousand things. We'll let other people do the thousand, thousand things. You follow me. And this is verses in the Lucan story. Uh, James and John and Peter, who left their nets and followed him, mm -hmm. which you said at one point, that's a ridiculous thing or something <laughs> like that. Uh, but that would be played out in the Lucan biblical drama. As mm -hmm. These are the people who are pausing, yeah. whereas James and John uh, and Peter, assuming Andrew came mm -hmm. along for the ride there, mm -hmm. but it's not spelled out in that way exactly. Right. You know, they, they come and take off. 
Yeah. Well, Jesus is famous for hyperbole, I think, oh, in, yeah. in these Gospels. And totally. uh, the, the next one where another says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. I mean, both of these things are so reasonable. You right, know, exactly. of course you would do these things. And these are the good things. Like, I think Jesus is setting his disciples up to say, even you choose me even over the best things, the best relationships and the very best, you know, worthy moral things you can do. I'm even more important than those. Well, things. yeah, these are all about family at some yeah. level, right? Yeah. Home, father, and then <clears throat> yeah. like where you're going to lay your head. Right. So much for family values. Yeah. So much for family values. And it's another echo of Elijah and Elijah too, because um, you know, let let me first say farewell to those at my home. Elijah is says to Elisha, sure, you know, go say, go kiss your mother and father, wish them well, and then come along. And it's so reasonable. And Jesus here is saying, I expect even more of you than. Elijah expected of Elisha. Mm. Yeah, I'm with you. There's a kind of um, uh, there's a kind of ruthlessness that Jesus has about priorities, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's uh, <clears throat> it's the mission given him by the one he calls Father in his own life above everything else. Mm -hmm. That's it. And he says there's something analogous to that that's supposed to be true of everybody who's trying to follow him. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean, you know, I don't read this passage and think that it's not a good thing to, you know, have a funeral, right? Let the dead bury your dead. I love it. I'm so glad it consoles me. It's a colloquium because I'm, it's a colloquialism or it's a response to a colloquialism uh, about um, let me go and bury my father because let the dead bury the dead. I'm like, well, we're in the burial business. We can bury a lot of people. So I'm like, what'd you call me? Uh, um, you know, uh, and I... I think these are all good desires, right? They're all natural desires. And I think natural in the technical sense, right? We have natural bonds of kinship that he's talking about here. And he's using these natural bonds of kinship in order to discuss how God relativizes all of those natural bonds, whether they're family, career, aspiration, home, where you're from, whatever. Families of choice, families, uh, biological families, uh, families not of choice, as it were, uh, whatever. God is supposed to relativize all that stuff. Mm -hmm. It's not that God doesn't call many, many, many people to those relationships too. Mm -hmm. But the point is that God calls you to them. And so um, when we talk about this passage in the eighth grade confirmation class, we do it in the context of discussing how, are, how do these eighth graders feel drawn to have a family, right? And I mean, they're eighth graders. So there's only so much that they know about their lives, right? But they're beginning to just think about the different permutations of a Christian life. Mm -hmm. And the point that I try to make is there is no one blueprint for a Christian family. Mm -hmm. There's just not. Because Jesus in the Gospels relativizes all of those natural bonds across the board and says the most important thing is God and what God calls you to. Mm -hmm. Whatever your Jerusalem is, you're supposed to set your face toward it and go. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for some of, I tell the confirmants, for some of you, that's going to mean 2.5 kids and a dog. And that's going to be fantastic. And for some of you, it's not going to mean 2.5 kids, but it might mean a dog and a cat and a snake and a, and a cow. And uh, talking to my sister in South Dakota, and this is kind of, this is, uh, this is her menagerie. And my sister's a veterinarian and they live on, a, uh, they live in the Black Hills of, of South Dakota. So they got plenty of room for a menagerie. Uh, or, or they could be a monk or a nun, and they could be called to forego some of their natural some of, the, some of their natural bonds, some of the natural bonds they might have with a spouse, um, they might forego having children in this way, and they might make a family of choice of a kind that's devoted to prayer, 
right? And this is why monks and nuns use the language of brother and sister for each other, as I, I tell the confirmants. And we listen to some of the Episcopal, Episcopal monks at the Monastery of the Holy Cross. Uh, there's some great interviews with them. This is a monastery in West Park, New York, very close to us here in New Canaan. And we listen to them talk about what it means to live a family. And so even though these are colloquialisms, uh, even, though, um, uh, even though he's using these as like, um, uh, he's using them as examples of the cost of discipleship, to use the phrase of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, I think that in other passages, family is not just a colloquialism. It's of the essence of what he's trying to do. Um, and what he's trying to do, I think, is to say, there's no one perfect blueprint for, for a family or what it means to have a perfect family. And the, the, only blue, the only blueprint, to the extent there is a blueprint, is whatever God is calling you to do, whatever your Jerusalem is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that God is supposed to come first. And that demand on my own life has been very, very, very strong. And I'll just say that in my limited experience, but, but it is my experience, I've not experienced God's calls on me as being... Um, Oh, like a kind of punitive school teacher or something like that. There's not been a lot of um, there's not been a lot of that. What I've what I've found is that these calls have led me into life which I could not have ever imagined it could be that good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ta- it has taken courage at some points to do what I felt God had called me to do, but it always was accompanied by this like really odd sense that I was feeling compelled, not compelled by somebody who just told me to do something, but compelled by love. Like I think the disciples are compelled by love here. This Mm -hmm. is why I think they throw down their nets, that kind of thing. Um, Compelled by love, but also it it leads to things which are greater than I could have ever imagined. And I have to say, that's the way my marriage is. My marriage is greater. My marriage to Jewel is greater than I could have ever imagined it. And that's... I think that's, that's the heart of it, right? Not to go through these cultural scripts around marriage or family or children or whatever, uh, or, or around career or any other kind of natural something or other in the world. Not to go about them because that's just the script that life has for you or the script that your culture has for you, but to do them because God has said, I want for you to have life and have it more abundantly, and here's how. Here's mm-hmm. your Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. That's well said. I'm remembering Augustine saying, you know, love God and the rest, or it, the rest will follow. Yeah. You could say it better, but... No, that's right. So. <laughs> you, you've said that you've brought up that quote a lot. It's totally true. But it's true, yeah. And I think that here Jesus is... It, he, that's the, the deal. Like, if, in a more metaphysical perspective, when you're setting your heart towards Jerusalem with Jesus and you're on this path, here it's called the road, but the, in the first century, following Jesus was called the way. Mm-hmm. And along the way, you know, we, we have these times where we say, well, I just don't have time now to meditate or I don't have time now to pray, but I'll come back to it. Mm-hmm. And in a way, <clears throat> you know, Jesus is just saying, be in a constant state, you know, a constant state of prayer and a constant state of attention and following on the path and, and everything will follow. So it's not about, you know, deprivation and suffering and the path towards certain death you know i mean there is a a metaphysical death that we we need to die but um but i i think that you said it so beautifully that it is a way of love and and jesus keeps teaching them that it's a way of love it's not a way of you know rubbing people out and discounting other people's value and things like that. It's a, it's a very inclusive path, but it requires a dedication that that's the hard path is to love others mm. and to love God. 
Do you have a last word, Peter? Uh, just to, um, perhaps I'll just, I have a, a, a word and it might be the last word. Okay. I don't think it's a particularly amazing word, but I would just say that uh, in our world, you know, we honor people who are have great expertise uh, and who are experts. And I think of somebody like uh, Rafael Nadal, who uh, <laughs> just won that tennis match on a foot with Novocaine in it. Uh, and how many hours uh, he has swung the tennis mm -hmm. racket, or we're in the playoffs, and Steph Curry, uh, who uh, is the world's is the world's greatest shooter in basketball, and and people see it and are wowed by it. But that Steph works with a singular vision towards shooting a basketball. He shoots thousands and thousands and thousands of shots, over over a thousand shots a day, oftentimes, and in that kind of clarity about the oneness of the vision. And I'm just talking about that in our culture, but here what Jesus is saying is the clarity, the oneness of the vision is the divine. Mm. And that this is where, this is, this is where you look. This is where you, and that that will sort everything else in your life. That will resort your family life. That will resort, that will resort your priorities. But, but all craziness breaks uh, out if you put two priorities on there and suddenly, suddenly it doesn't work so well. But what he's saying is one, Stay on the one, and that you're gonna. And the cost of that is some things will fall away, some things will come up, but you have to have the courage for the oneness of the vision, which in his case is is follow me on my way to the to God the Father. That's 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 what he's talking about. That's the one. That's a good last word. I'd say so. Thank you for joining us this week, and we look forward to seeing you in church on Sunday. Like, share, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for joining us. See you soon on the way.